Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a weekly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Jason Fox, the former Marine Special Forces operative and now documentary filmmaker. Jason's career has spanned several decades and dozens of countries, but there's been a running theme throughout. No matter where he finds himself, Jason survives and thrives in some of the harshest situations and environments on the planet. In fact, his new show on Channel 4, The Real Narcos, sees the man infiltrate the world's most dangerous drug cartels. It's a brilliant show, which I can't recommend enough. And so we thought the theme for this episode of our own humble podcast should be all about conquering your fears, facing risk and overcoming monumental odds, whether they're in business or in life. And that is something that Jason knows how to do better than almost anybody else. Jason, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thank you very much for having me in. You've, um, throughout your career, all the different careers you've had, whether it's a Special Forces operative or a Royal Marine or now a documentary filmmaker, you seem to put yourself in um, risky, dangerous, high-stress situations. Do you think some people are just more built for that than others, or is that something we can all learn? I think <clears throat> it was probably learned for me. Well, actually, I grew up in a dodgy place, so maybe not. But anyway. Where did you grow up? I did all my schooling in Luton. Yeah. So it's, there's better places. Yeah. Sorry for anyone in Luton. <laughs> but um, no, I joined the Marines at 16 quite young. And I think I sort of like gradually worked into the sort of the the environment that that sort of puts you into. And, you know, that it event, you know, essentially you end up in dodgy places and you, you sort of like you leading an adrenaline fueled life. I left the military, you know, after 20 years and I tried to do what we'd call a normal job as a projects manager and it just didn't it just didn't do it for me. I was sort of like not happy, uh, had a word with myself, realised that I didn't need to be doing that and I should be doing the things that I'm used to, which was sort of high octane sort of bits yeah. and pieces and somehow I ended up on TV <laughs> doing that. There we go. Yeah. So you, you can't escape it. No. What, what were you like at school? What were you like as a young man in Luton? I was quite quiet, to be honest. I was sort of like middle of the pack. Okay. Not really interested in school, to be fair. I was interested in the lads and mucking around and not really achieving anything worthwhile, you know, other than playing practical jokes. So I was, I was sort of that sort of person. I liked to be outside a lot. I liked sports yeah. and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, because of where I did grow up... I was, at 16, I think somehow I was subconsciously aware that I needed to get away from that environment because I was going to end up in trouble, which is why I joined the military. There was a there was an element of sway due to the fact that my dad was in the Marines as well, so that you know if I was going to leave and I wasn't, you know, I, know I had no qualifications and I was obviously going to go down the military route, and mm. it was you know there was a bit of sway there because my dad was in the Marines. Really, what was what was it like on the first day when you did you walk into a recruitment centre or did you did someone come to school or? No, I, I, decide, I decided what I was going to do was join the Marines. There was a careers office not far from where we lived, walked in, saw this older guy, told me to get on a pull-up bar and try and do pull-ups, which I did a few, but not enough. He dropped down, he said, come back in a few weeks' time. Came back a few weeks later, did enough pull-ups, sat down, basically sat an exam, which yeah. was not really an exam, it's quite easy. Okay. And he said, right, brilliant, yeah, we'll, Fine. we'll load you up onto the next sort of phase of training. And what does that consist of? Is that where it gets a bit heavier? It was, You basically go down to Limston near Exmouth, which is the Royal Marines Training Centre, 
and um, you do a, I think it was a three or four day long course called, a, it was, at the time it was called a potential recruits course. And nowadays it's called a potential Royal Marines course. And you basically just get fragged. And if you're stood at the end and they like you, then you're allowed to come back and start 30 weeks of training. 30 weeks? Yeah, 30 weeks of recruit training. Is that, I mean, it's famously psychologically very difficult, the Royal Marines. Is that when the psychological tests come in at that 30-week point? Basically, they, they, they don't tell you that it's psychological. Because mm. as a young lad, you just think it's physical because that's, that's all you really remember. And I don't remember ever having to retain too much information. But I think the psychology is there because you're constantly expected to turn up to certain places on time in the right, in the, you know, in the right rig, the right clothing. And do you know do hard physical stuff, and I think that's what breaks you down psychologically. So the emphasis is on physical okay. pressure, but the psychology, you know, the psychological pressure is always there in the background. And they're looking for mental resilience as well, presumably, through that physical testing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What's the what's the most tough physical test that that, that you went through in those thirty weeks? Ooh, there's a lot you see there's lots they, there's different phases so you'll do a lot of gym work to begin with they called they called it at the time IMF which is initial military fitness which mm. is Swedish PT which is prancing around like a lunatic sounds quite nice in a way it, it does sound nice it's not <laughs> it's horrendous but um, you, you sort of like get dressed up in your bright white shorts bright white top which are always have to be bright white you know okay they, you know they, they need to be immaculate and you just prance around the gymnasium floor for you know an hour or two <laughs> it sounds. It doesn't sound that bad, but it is. Honestly, it's horrendous. And then, and then you basically move on to the next phase, which I can't remember what it's called because it was so long ago. But that's a little bit more military orientated, where you're sort of down on the bottom field where the assault course is. You're in green kit. You're carrying logs. You're jumping over walls. That sort of yeah. thing. And that's quite hard. They go on for a long period of time, and then you move into the commando phase, which is very much military fitness, where you're doing long speed marches. You're yomping, which means walking with a heavy rucksack. And then you move into the commando tests, which are the assault the assault course, the Tarzan assault course, the endurance course, and the 30 miler. Yeah. And I suppose the 30, they're the four commando tests. The 30 miler is obviously the longest, but I found the hardest was the Tarzan assault course. It's only, it only lasts 13 minutes, but it's 13 minutes of pretty much sheer yeah. hell. And when your body's kind of screaming at you to stop, is there kind of a mental place you go to? Is there, a, to use a slightly silly phrase, a happy place that you retreat to? <laughs> I don't know whether I've ever found that happy place. I just <laughs> switched off. It's easy for me to switch off. OK, yeah. so you just block it all out and just... I just plod on, yeah. Right, plod yeah. on. You're taking the scenery. <laughs> well, it's all very well to say that, but I'm sure it's harder than that. Is there any kind of little tricks that you learn along the way? Little, I don't know, some people kind of sing songs in their head, other people think of their loved ones. Yeah. Sing song. It's funny you should say that about the singing songs because when I was on selection for the special forces, there was always someone in my room, and in the morning he would always whistle, "Puff the Magic Dragon," and <laughs> all, that is all I had in my head for like the five hours of oh marching around the Welsh hillside, and it used to proper annoy me. Did you tell him to stop? No, I didn't realise it until the end because you never. It's just like a subconscious yeah. thing. You'd be like, you'd be up on the hills like, why am I, why am I, why am I going through this song in my head? God. It was only towards the end, you're like, ah, it's him. Yeah. It's his fault. <laughs> uh, no, I don't normally sing any songs. Because no, they're normally put into my head by some lunatic that's sat next to me. <laughs> and where do you think you fell in the in the spectrum of Royal Marines? Were you kind of middle of the road or were you one of the best? Or At the end of, at the end of training, 
I'd say I was, I was 16. You know, I was, I was young, I was still naive. Well, a lot of the blokes must have been a lot older than you then. Yeah, they, I think I was one of two or three that young, and then the rest are sort of like... Most of the lads were sort of early to mid-twenties. Okay. So they were quite, it was quite an older bunch. Does that make it easier, do you think, if you're younger, you're, you've got less baggage, maybe, in a way? I think, yeah, less baggage. You so, I, I genuinely think you learn quicker. You, I found it harder to begin with and easier at the end, whereas the older guys just, I think they found it hard. Well, they they didn't find the beginning very hard because they'd already lived. They'd already probably lived in houses on their own without mm. their mums. And, you know, the admin side of it, they could square away. Whereas for me, that was the hardest part to begin really? with. Really? was actually looking after myself. Yeah. Or washing the, the white shorts. Uh, yeah, yeah, washing the white shorts, ironing, ironing. Really? Yeah, yeah. God, that's that's quite incredible. That you'd think would be the easiest part. Mm. I know, exactly, yeah. That's what I think that's what I thought as well, but no, it wasn't. Um, and then after that, of course, after the Royal Marines, how long were you in the Marines for, I should ask first? I did 10 years. 10 years? Yeah, 10 years of playing sport and getting drunk around the world. It's great. What was your favourite place you visited? Ooh. I like the Far East. Yeah? I do enjoy the Far East, yeah. Malaysia, Singapore, that sort of area. We used to, have, used to go out there quite a bit. So it was quite fun. That must have, when was that? The the nineties. Yeah, nineties yeah. mainly. And then of course things changed in two thousand and one, I suppose, and everything got a little bit more serious for yeah. Royal Marines. Yeah, yeah. I mean that was, yeah, two thousand and one was a year it all went upside down, really, wasn't it? And um, it was that year that I'd put in to go on special forces selection. Okay. But after nine eleven, or <clears throat> no, I think it was about the same sort of time. I can't remember. Do you know what? I can't remember whether it was before or after. It must have been before. It must have been around that time. Yeah. It wasn't. I definitely know it wasn't because of that. What was the um, transition like? You were having such a good time in the Royal Marines. Why did you decide then to go into this completely new challenge as a special forces? I think the reason I did that was because, firstly, I I, I loved being a soldier. I, I, I genuinely, really loved being a soldier. But no, no disrespect to the Marines, but the, the they are a little bit more conventional than the mm-hmm. special forces and there is an element of pomp and ceremony which I don't particularly get on with you know getting dressed up in your number one uniform right. having to polish your boots every day and you don't have to do that if in the special forces very rarely do you do any sort of ceremonial marching around you no not at all you don't have time and it doesn't really serve a purpose okay you do it on like you know remembrance day things like that you you obviously you know, get dressed, but most of us look like a right bag of potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not, not very good at getting dressed smartly. <laughs> uh, the Royal Marines is is impressive enough for most people, but the Special Forces is kind of a notch above that as far as endurance and, and mental strength goes. Was it a big step up for you? There's a lot of Marines. You know, there's awesome, awesome, awesome soldiers in the Marines, and some of them choose not to go the Special Forces way. Some of them do and get injured and don't actually make it. Unfortunately, I think what it is is we've we've with the unit ours in the special forces you you're given a lot more autonomy mm-hmm. you're given a lot you're basically given a lot more rope to hang yourself with really but you know you're you're left alone to to get on with it and you're you know it's very much more grown up i feel like it's a little bit more grown up you know there is rank structure but you've all got a voice you can you, you know you you know that you've got an element of say in any of the plans that are yeah. going on and it's just yeah it's just a little it's like a grown up version and you're also, you know, you know that you're actually, you know, the special forces are a strategic asset. So they're controlled by ministers, you know, high ranking officials. Yeah. 
but they deliver that strategic sort of capability at a tactical level so you are on the ground so yeah it's the best of both worlds you know you know you're having quite a big impact big effect yeah but you're still getting to be a soldier on the ground and what what is it that motivates you is it the kind of uh, higher calling a patriotic um, love for your country or is it uh, the camaraderie of your the guys around <clears throat> you I think it's a mix there is an element of patrioticness yeah. in there but I think it's more to do with the lads to yeah. be honest by that stage of the game yeah you, you, you're a professional soldier you enjoy being a soldier so that's why you do it you know the, the patriotism is there of course it is but it is you know once you're in it and you're amongst it it is about the, the guys that you work with who yeah. are you know left and right front and back it's about those people yeah and what parts of the world did you find yourself in in the special forces all over yeah. um globally you operate but you know the obvious ones are all, you know afghanistan etc yeah. you know it's been the it's been the main theater of operations for yeah. a good 15 years really you were um a swimmer am i right a diver you do yeah you, that was one of the qualifications yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah you do the diving is that are you natural in the water do, I only I'm say not. that because you're if you are a very big muscular man, and most swimmers we see are kind of slightly lithe and long and it's it's a it's not really swimming. You you sort of like sat sinking. At, yeah, yeah. You sat at about three meters under the water under okay. the surface, and you've you've got large fins on that you can kick away with. Yeah, it's more about you know getting down there and going in a straight line. I think that's probably my worst fear is to be in deep dark water. Yeah. You, did you enjoy that? I don't know whether anyone does enjoy it. It's yeah. always, it was always, you know, when you knew that you had a, a dive serial coming up, like a week's worth of diving, and most of the stuff you do is at night as well. Yeah. So you, everyone's like, ugh, <laughs> here we go. You're just completely out of your element. You can't see anything really. No, you, no, it's, it's, it takes a while to get used to it. When you, when you first, they, they ease you into it, but then when you're doing, you know, when you're in the thick of it doing it, you know, it's difficult to explain, but it's just, you can't see you, you, you've got bits of kit hanging off you. No, yeah. Every dive you have a nightmare. Something gets tangled up, you get caught on something. Your BU, your, you know, your breathing apparatus gets ripped out of your mouth and you're rummaging around in the water trying to find it. Yeah, There's always, there's always a drama down, down there. But you can laugh about it now. Was it really scary at the time? or Do you have any moments of, of, of utter fear? Nah, the, the training does prepare you quite well. So, you know, if something does happen when you're down there underwater, you're actually quite calm and collected. Yeah. So, yeah, you, 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 you know that you need to be... If you start panicking underwater, then it, it, all, it all goes pear-shaped yeah. rather quickly. I'm sure there's um, lessons for all of us in our life when we're in situations that we could panic in, but we shouldn't because it would, it would make it better. What was your training that prevented you from panicking? I think the, the training is that they, they, they deliberately, you know, throughout your military career, they put you into uncomfortable situations until you're comfortable. So it's like... They just keep putting you under pressure and until you become used to that pressure, mm. then you're comfortable in that situation. You know you can handle that situation. And if it's in training, if it happens for real, you think back to that moment in training when you're doing it, and you're like, oh, hang on a minute, I am. And it, that allows you to remain quite calm. Mm. You also know that you, no matter what's going on, you have an element of, or you have the ability to slow it down just a little bit. Take, take it, well, t I say take a deep breath, not if you're underwater, but you know, take a <laughs> yeah. moment sort of compose yourself don't don't start flapping yeah and then deal with what you need to deal with instead of like you know, squirming around like a headless chicken underwater and all yeah. sorts of other things are going to start going wrong but but you can do that in all sorts of situations yeah. not just not just diving do you 
I mean, now you kind of do keynote speeches and, and some motivational stuff. Do you explain that to people and say, here's how you should deal with a stressful situation? Is that like a kind of toolkit that you have? Yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, if you could, yeah, it is. It's more to do with like, you know, stressful situations is about like taking some confidence from yourself if you're there. You know, look at yourself, be, take confidence, know that you're capable of doing something. If there's people around you as well, a team, then look around, take confidence from them. But the main thing is to slow a situation down. You normally allow, you normally can slow a situation down to a certain degree. Breathe, you know, take take whatever it is that you need to take, whether it's six seconds or six minutes, yeah, and then have a think about what's going on, and then sort of swing into action and deal with it in a slightly more methodical way. You know, a way that that's not the headless chicken. Yeah, it seems to me that the special forces particularly is very psychological in that you're in situations where you've got to read people and rooms and kind of gauge the mood of confrontational situations quite quickly. Are you very good at reading people, do you think? Or have you have you learned that? Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think so. You know, I'm sure I'm sure I'd get it wrong more than more than more often than not. But I think, yes, there's a lot of, you know, special forces operators you know, everyone thinks that we're these crazy people that go around wanting a fight and it's not the case. It's more, you know, you're better off not getting into a fight, which means, you know, if you can go into a situation and calm it down or look at a way of getting what you need to get done, done without, you know, without getting into a fight, so to speak, then you do that. That in turn makes you go into, you, yeah, we say, we talk about going into a room, you go into a room and you sort of like gauge the atmosphere mm. and sort of like look at the individuals there, look at body language, that sort of thing, Yeah, and, you know. The, the the violent side of it is is just is, that's in the back pocket. You know, you don't really want to start opening up that can of worms. And what have been some of those really tense situations? I mean, I guess a lot of the time there's a language barrier as well, and there's a there's a huge amount of cultural things in the way. Yeah, I think there's a, there's always you know that that's sometimes the issue. You know, the language barrier, the culture. A lot of it is there's a, there's you know when you're in those situations, there's a lot of hot-headedness, a lot of alpha male sort of bravado kicking around. Yeah. And it's about going in there and breaking that down, sometimes swallowing your own pride and not not being like the, the bolshy alpha yeah. male, being the person that's there to build the relationship. Do you think in your life away from the military, you're kind of a, a typical alpha male or you... I don't think so, no. Do they, does the military help you kind of get rid of any ego or... I don't know, I think it, some people yes, some people no. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, and when we talk about fear, I wonder what, if there are any moments in, in your time there, what was the most terrified you've ever been and how did you overcome that? It's difficult for me to talk about it, but I, I, I have been in the middle of a, of a gunfight lying in a ditch on my back, obviously taking cover. And um, it was sort of later on in my career as well, so it wasn't it wasn't something I wasn't used to, but I had mm. the... I had this feeling, like sort of like come over me. It didn't didn't last long, seconds if that. But it was, I remember thinking, well, wishing that I was back home as a ten year old with my mum. Wow, which was bizarre. What and you be- think? Why do you think that thought came to? I think that was just. I think it was just fear. I think it was the emotion of fear setting in, and I was obviously wanting to go to to a happy place. Yeah, Luton. And, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Bizarre. I mean, mum's mad as well. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but. Um, that was That's, definitely yeah. one, yeah. I mean, it can be, you know, you know, I I sort of gave myself a slap around the fa- face metaphorically, right. and you know, looked at myself, took confidence for myself, and looked at the lads that were around me, took confidence for them, and then off we went. You left the military in about 2012, is that right? Yeah. What do you remember that time? Why did you decide to step away? Um, it wasn't quite my decision, so to speak, because I remember feeling 
I was I wasn't loving my job mm. for some reason, and it was do it was basically it was doing my head in. You couldn't work out why you weren't enjoying what no, you used to love. No, I just yeah exactly. So when I, I sort of like then went and presented myself to there's they they had a psych nurse and spoke to that individual about why you know I said you know I'm not enjoying this job and I'm waiting to go away again and it, it's not I, mm. I'm not looking forward to it. And long story short was I was then diagnosed with PTSD and then medically discharged from the military. So yeah. it was a bit it was a dark time to be honest because I didn't want to leave. I just wanted to love my job again. But it was it was deemed that I had PTSD and that the best thing for me would to be to leave. Yeah. So what <coughs> then did you look to? What <coughs> careers? You've been in the military since you were 16. Yeah. What were those first days like? Do you have any idea what you wanted to do? No, not really. I was, I was, I was a bit lost, to be honest. And um, I can't really remember it that well. It was quite a fuzzy period for me. It was quite dark. I'd lost my identity. I felt at the time that I'd failed at a job. Mm. it wasn't that it was just it was a period of time where I probably you know it was a good thing that I probably did leave maybe but at the time you don't think that and I ended up I did pick up a job I was given a job kindly by a, a guy that's remained a good friend of mine as a, and I worked as a projects manager but it it just it wasn't for me I, I, I tried to I tried to stick with it but it just it was like I was denying who I was was it a kind of a desk job or? it was a de- it was a traveling yeah. desk job yeah it was. I mean, it was on paper. It was a decent job, actually. Of course. But it was just not. It wasn't for me. It wasn't the environment that I wanted to be in. I didn't really know what to do at the time, and I ended up doing it for about eighteen months, and then I left and I went into uh, private security, which is the natural, you know, the yeah. natural progression. Not really ideal. Wasn't what I wanted to do. I, again, didn't know what I wanted to do. But then I picked up a job working for an oil exec, and then that was at the time when the price of oil crashed and so that job went away yeah. and I was like oh my god what am I going to so do next? So for you it looked setback after setback it was quite yeah, a dark time. It was it was a bit bleak yeah. And that was only about five years ago I suppose. Well, it wasn't that long yeah. yeah I think that was 14 really so four really? years ago yeah and then it was all at the same time I then uh, I've got a really good friend of mine called Aldo he was working in sort of TV behind the camera safety basically doing the safety for uh, yeah. the production companies and he said, mate, I've got, a, I've got a job for you out in Madagascar looking after, basically being the underwater cameraman's dive buddy. So I said, yeah, I'll do nice. that. It was cool. It was a great trip. Yeah. yeah. And your career, which we now know you for, I suppose, has kind of gone from there. Yeah, it did. It was, yeah, like a convoluted story, but essentially it came sort of from that trip. Went away, did a good job, found, found some pirate treasure, which is a bonus, and, <laughs> you know, got a bit of a name. And then uh, in in certain circles, and then this idea for the SAS Who Dares Wins show came up, and I think basically the meeting was yeah, great idea, but where do you find these ex special forces guys? And I yeah. think my name was banded around. And was that frightening to go in front of camera the first time? Was that scary in a different way? Actually, stepping in front of the camera wasn't, mm-hmm. but it was the, it was the decision to do that that was scary. It was like the the week of umming and ahhing about whether this was a good idea and should what, I do it. What were it? the factors? What were the pros and cons? Uh, the pros were it was work, and I didn't. I still at that time we didn't know what it was going to look like and whether it was going to be successful. But it sounded good fun. So the cons were the pros. Sorry, were it was good. It was good. It looked like it was going to be good fun, and it was work, and it looked like it was decent work, and it was it was calling upon our old skills as well. So it was like it, you know, we were able to sort of utilize what we had learned in the past. The cons were the military, the, the SF in the world group. They weren't too enamoured by it, and they advised us not to do it. And right. 
they, they said there's an element of danger there. We can't tell you not to put your face on TV. You're obviously not allowed to talk about certain things, which we wouldn't have done anyway. But, you know, they said... And so that was... that was That's what we thought long and hard about, yeah. or I did, definitely. So you've changed from one career to another, and you're, you were no longer a young man at that point. And there must be people who probably listening to this who are changing careers at a later stage in life. What would your advice be to them when things seem to be not going their way? <clears throat> I think... In hindsight, I wish I'd been able to give myself this bit of advice, but when you change careers, especially you still you're not old, but you're not young, you know, mm. it's quite daunting, but don't be hell bent on making the first thing you find that thing that lasts forever. Almost go into that, you know, that new career sort of transition phase and see it as fun, a fun journey where you're learning about yourself. Not everything's going to work out, but yeah. at least you're learning about yourself. If you try and turn it into a positive as opposed to a negative, then it it's almost like it's just a fun journey. And keeping it positive means you'll probably bounce from maybe... Unless you do find the right thing, you know, don't get me wrong, there's probably people that find the right thing straight away and off they go, and that's great. But if you don't find the right thing, all you're doing is you're learning about yourself and you're learning what it is that you need to do. And that, that the next bit that you don't know what's coming is going to be fun because you don't know what's coming. Yeah. Did you surprise yourself with the, these new skill sets of being able to present and kind of engage people? Yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, basically. Because I you, know, I, you never had to do anything like that at all before. No, not really. I did. It was basically. I remember having a bit of a word with myself just before we started filming for the first SAS, and we were doing the interviews as well, where we do the pieces to camera. And I was like, right, how should I come across? What should I, you know? Oh, no, I'm a, bit, a little bit worried about this. And I was like, hang on a minute, just, just be me. Just, yeah. Just if that, if if it works, it works. But at least you're not trying to lie to yourself or anyone else. Yeah. And do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy the kind of having your face out there, the bit of maybe fame in a, in a small way? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> do, do people stop you in the pub? Do they say hello? Some do, yeah. yeah. Not, not, it's not like, yeah, not all the time. No, of course. I mean, when, when, when the series is out, whatever series it is, then you're obviously in the forefront of people's minds and it is a little bit more, Yeah, you know, it, it happens more often. People be like, hey. And then, you know, when it sort of like dies down a bit, it's normally more about, did we go to school together? Like, <laughs> yeah, did you? <laughs> is that what you say? Sometimes. Yeah, it's much easier. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Inside the Real Narcos, which is your newest show. And if anyone's listening on the day of release, it airs at 9pm tonight on Channel 4, the second episode, which is very exciting. But what, what, one of the things that strikes me so much about that show is the access to an incredibly high level of, of drug cartel member that, that's never really been seen before. How did you even go about approaching these people? The shows, it's like... It's been two years in the making. There's been there was so much development that that went before we even did the shoot. So the producers worked tirelessly looking for stories, then looking for the contacts in those stories, then looking for fixes in country to sort of like go and assess whether they were they were genuine. Yeah. So there was a lot of work that went into it, and the access was um, it was unbelievable. It was amazing, and it's down to the you know the producers sat back in London. Yeah. Fixes on the ground you know, chasing up those stories, making sure they were legit. Yeah. And then doing the sort of like relationship building side of things. And then we were going in and then continuing that on. And um, why did these people want to go on camera? I guess that's my question. They're criminals. Yeah, there's probably three reasons. One is they're intrigued by why I would want to go and speak to them because yeah. they know that I'm ex-special forces. Two, they they are gangsters. They got egos. They want to brag about what they do and about how successful they are. Mm. And then three, for a few of them, I think it was an it was an opportunity for them to vent. It was like a 
a semi-weird form of therapy where they can just talk about what they do yeah. to an outside individual. What do you think they thought of you when they met you? Probably thought I was mad. Um, I know they were right. They, were, they, they seem, you know, once we'd broken down a few of the barriers or, or sort of got past the sort of the very sketchiness with the, with the fact that they're very paranoid, they, they weren't, you know, they're, they're people. You know, if they didn't do that, they'd do something else and you'd probably get on with them and you wouldn't think that bad of them. But they weren't too bad, yeah. They were, mm. they were quite receptive. There was, there was the odd one or two that weren't. You'll see those. Did you think they respected your kind of military credentials in a way? Some did, yeah. Some did, some didn't care. Because I guess organised crime structures are kind of hierarchical like the military and the yeah. commanders and bosses. I'd say it is, it is very much like the military, the way the cartels are structured. It seemed that way anyway from what we could gather, from what they were telling us. Yeah. And it's incredibly sophisticated like the military. There were some bits in the first episode where they kind of detect a a US helicopter before, I don't know how they do it, but they must have people everywhere. So that, that sequence that you see there where the, where the helicopters are flying around, they, I mean, they, we knew that they were coming before we could hear them. And the guy, he said he's got about four 400 people in that area, just dotted around, minding their own business, doing their own stuff. But as soon as something fishy seems to be happening, yeah. they're just on the, on the radios talking. And they're, 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 their communication is, is unbelievable. Yeah, and the, how quickly they can mobilise and disappear is—it was—it was impressive. You can't help but not be impressed. Yeah, and it must have been surreal for you to have been in the military for so long, hunting these people, then to be hiding out with them. Yeah, <laughs> under the canopy of trees, away from a military helicopter. Yeah, that was mad. To be fair, <laughs> I was like, "What the hell are we doing?" Yeah, yeah, how hoping odd. that they didn't land because we'd have been in the middle of a gun battle, which wouldn't have been too great. But there you go. Was there big cultural differences between these people or did you kind of have some shared sense of humour? I think there was a shared sense of humour a little yeah. bit every now and again. A lot of the time it was after the interviews had happened and they'd, they'd relaxed into the situation and realised that we weren't DEA grasses or something yeah. like that. So it, once that had happened and we were just hanging around, it, it became a bit more relaxed and they, they would start cracking a few jokes and yeah. what have you. But there was always an element of tense. Of there, was, there was always an, that, there was always that atmosphere, you know. Even when there was a bit of banter going on, which there needed to be, we 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 wanted that because we just wanted them to feel a bit more relaxed. But there was still they were still very very paranoid and sort of worried about us being around. They could they basically couldn't wait to get rid of us yeah. at the end of the interview, even though there was a bit of sort of toing and froing of banter. They just wanted us gone. To be fair. And one of the techniques you kind of use is to be quite honest and open with them about your past and the things you've done. It, and that's not necessarily natural to a special forces man. Is that difficult for you to, to be so candid? Yeah, I found it uncomfortable, yeah. I, you know, some of the conversations I was having weren't, didn't sit right with me, but I did understand that I needed to open up to those people, especially the hitmen, because I wanted to get into their psyche. I didn't think that I was anything like them, but I just knew that there was a form of common ground mm. and I wanted them to feel comfortable enough to sort of open up. Yeah. Which I think they did to a certain degree. There's one in there's a bit there's a bit in Colombia where someone opens up. And one of the surreal bits in the the first episode, the bit that's kind of stuck with me, um was the commander, I suppose. The chap is wearing the kind of red bandana on yeah. his face and he says, the one thing I haven't done, the only thing I haven't done is kill a reporter like you, yeah. but I might quite like to. We, we, it, he's laughing when he says that. Yeah. But, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty explicit threat. It was, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I just thought to myself, right, okay, don't rise to that one. Right. Um, but he was he was quite an interesting character. <laughs> he was quite he was quite a lot of fun. He in was, what way? As in, he just liked to crack jokes and yeah. have a laugh. He was quite relaxed, quite chilled out. When the helicopters were flying around, he wasn't really that. He was like, okay, yeah, we'll deal with that. Yeah. And he sort of like disappeared into the woods, and we'd be like, is he coming back? <laughs> Sat around waiting for, and then he'd, he'd appear again through the woods and like have a, a like laugh and a joke, and then we'd yeah. get on with the interview. And yeah. what, what were some of the hairiest moments in that, in the whole filming process? I mean, there's some hairy moments in Peru. There's a few hairy moments in Colombia as well. I won't talk about those yet because I don't want to spoil them. Yeah. But the the Mexico one, definitely when the guys in the the skull masks turned up, mm. that was that was sketchy. That was really sketchy. They were on edge, we were on edge, and we were in the middle of Kulakan. Yeah. And we didn't really know where we were because we'd been sort of like led all over the place, deliberately so. That that was scary. And actually on that interview, there was, the interpreter had slightly, it got something slightly wrong and the guy behind him had basically turned around and said, look, if you keep mucking around, we're going oh, really? to kill you all and bury you in the desert. And he had his pistol out and I was like, Ugh. <laughs> So, yeah. So you're kind of in the hands of the interpreter. One... Misspoken word, and you yeah, they well on that occasion they we had our interpreter who was brilliant. Yeah, they brought their own one along and was like, nah, we're using him. Oh and wow, this, this bloke looked absolutely petrified, and I was, yeah. I was like, oh, I don't have a lot of confidence in that guy, <laughs> and I was right. That was one of El Chapo's. Yeah, I think he was known as El El or Guerrero. Yeah, something. Yeah, and El Chapo, who's of course is probably the most powerful Mexican drug lord of all time. Now in prison, didn't didn't that chap uh, wasn't he killed shortly after you filmed with him? Yeah, he was killed a, a month or so, a few months after. Yeah. Is that quite poignant for you in a way? I to see, see in action, you meet a man who lives a dangerous life and then he dies. I suppose it is. It's to be expected, to be honest. Though, if you if they're you know they're living out there, leading that life, I think he was quite a let's say cantankerous individual, and he 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 annoyed the authorities on. A few occasions, and in the end, the Marines were like, oh, "Right, you're having it," and, yeah. and he did. Do so, you see some parallels in kind of the tour mentality when you're touring the army, and also the the way they live their lives? Yeah, except I can come home, and they they they're living it twenty four seven for however long they're alive. So it must the stress levels. I mean, they maybe they're conditioned into it because they are literally living it. They're they're born into it, but it's not. You know, he actually said he's you know he's always looking over his shoulder. Yeah. Always waiting to get popped. So, do you think a large number of them would be diagnosed with PTSD, for example? I should imagine. They'd yeah, have they'll have they'll have some form of mental illness going on just because of the stress levels that they're yeah, under. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's only natural. What was the most kind of shocking or harrowing thing you saw when you were filming the series? I think the main one, and it wasn't the fa- it was obviously you know the, the dismembered body. It's it's not nice to see that. And you, you see some gruesome things in war. It's more that people have gone out with that mindset that, right, okay, today we're going to get someone from another cartel and we're going to chop him up. Mm. And and also, to go with that, the people that do it are normally about 14, 15-year-old now. So I think that's probably the darkest the darkest thing about that place yeah. is, is that someone goes out to do that, to make a statement, and it's young people that are doing it. Yeah. The name of the show kind of calls back to the, the Netflix show, the very successful Netflix show, Narcos. Well, how different is that slightly glamorous, I suppose, fiction to the reality? The people with all the cash, you're not, we're not going to get access to them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 
And so you do get to see a lot of the the poorer side of it, you know, the communities that are taken advantage of, you know, the fact that they don't have a choice in what they do and, you know, a hitman has to be a hitman sometimes and a person that makes drugs or harvests them, you know, has to do it because there's nothing else for them in those communities. Yeah. So it is less glamorous. There, there has to be a bit of glamour in the narcos. Yeah, of course. But, yeah, there's, there, I would say there's a lot less glamour than people think there is. Yeah. And do the people who are producing these drugs have any idea that eventually they'll reach as far away as London and, and kind of middle-class people might be buying them off a street corner? I think some people do. So the guy that is now dead, I'd say he did. He was high enough up to realise yeah. what was going on. People that we meet in Colombia who are associated with Pablo Escobar, definitely. But the, but the you know, the bottom of the food chain, the farmers mm. and, the, and the cocaine chefs... In Peru, especially, I don't think they have any idea how big the drugs issue is. Has it changed your view of, of drugs in general and drug use? No, I've gone in unbiased that on that one. I don't, I don't, I don't want an opinion on it. But what I do, what I have seen is, I feel that the, you know, the war could be waged in a slightly different way with regard to sort of looking at investing in the communities that are being taken advantage of by the cartels you know whether that's with infrastructure education mm. you know investment in business you know legitimate business in that area so those people have got a legitimate income because at the moment they haven't and that's why there is you know that's why it's there yeah and there's an argument that's been rumbling on for years about decriminalizing drugs in <laughs> in places like the US or Europe to to kind of cut off that um, the black market there. I mean, yeah, there's obviously an argument for it, and it's one that I think people should look at seriously. You know, the war on drugs isn't being won at the moment, yeah. not as far as I'm concerned. So they need to start looking at lots of other options as well as the one that we're doing. You know, and and work out what's best, what's best for everyone. I don't know what that answer is because it's no. you know for me it's above my pay pay grade. But you know, maybe maybe looking at other options is 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 something that should be done. But for me at the moment, it's definitely, you know, educating and in investing in the communities that are basically being exploited by cartels. Were there any kind of really beautiful or lovely moments like that? Were there people you met who were incredibly interesting or surprised you? Yeah, quite a lot of them. You know, Peru especially, that was quite a colourful country. And it was great. Me, I spent a bit of time with the, the, the coca farmers there. They were fun people. They're just farmers, you know. Mm. They've got a few other crops, but the crop that makes them the most money is coca because they can harvest it all day. It's like a weed. It, 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 dro it grows all year round. They harvest it four times a year. But then do they know what it's going towards. Yeah, they, they do. There, are, there is legitimate use for it as well. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of product in Peru that's made with coca. Mm -hmm. But obviously the main one, because it's got the most money in it, is cocaine. Yeah. But they're aware of it, yeah. Is there going to be another project? Have you got a taste for that kind of documentary making? Yeah, definitely. I really enjoyed it. <clears throat> and it's something that I'd love to do again. Whether I get that opportunity, you know, that's up to other people. But hopefully that opportunity will come my way again because it was something that I really, really did like. Yeah. Are there other areas that you'd like to explore away from drug trafficking? Anything, anything a bit sketchy, okay. where pe interesting people work. Do you think you need that kind of adrenaline to to have fun? Yeah, I think I'd like to have it there. Yeah. It makes me appreciate sort of like when it's not there as well. Yeah, it's good to have a balance. Do you ever just relax and do nothing for a weekend? Yeah, quite a bit. What do you do in your downtime? 
sit around in the sun on a, on days like this, <laughs> yeah, drinking rosé. No, <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I'll go home, sit down, and turn on the TV and hope yeah. and look for something that's funny, something I don't need to think about, and just chill out. What have you got coming up on the horizon that you can tell us about? I'm off in the autumn to film the next series of SAS Who Dares Wins, and then I'm really excited about my book, which I'm, we're just finishing off now. It's going to be called Battle Scars. That wow. comes out in November, and it's basically my journey with, you know, it's basically about war and the life after it, you know. So it's basically my journey with mental health issues during my early years of coming out of the military. Was that difficult to write, to revisit that stuff? No. I found it quite good, actually. Good. Awesome. Before you go, I want to ask you some kind of quick-fire questions we ask everyone yeah. um, to hopefully get to know you even better than we already do. Um, who in the world do you most admire? My old man. Why's that? I don't know. He's just been a role model for when I was, since I was a young kid, and he still remains to be one, to be fair. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't making films now? Good question. That one. Uh, <laughs> drinking rosé in the sun, maybe. Drinking rosé in the sun, yeah. Probably working, probably working in the security industry. Are you glad you're not doing that? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. Yeah. What are you most proud of in your many careers? I think I'm most proud for in my careers. Obviously, the, my special forces, Royal Marines career, special forces career, and now this seems to be going okay. So I'm quite proud of this to date. Yeah. And what do you think your biggest regret is or the thing you think was your biggest failure? I don't regret anything. Yeah? Mm. Everyone says this. Do they? Mm. We've never had anyone say, oh, my biggest failure was when I lost a million pounds doing that. Everyone goes, even if they do fail, no, I've, it's a been, positive. There's been a lot of things that I've failed at, but I don't regret it. I'm right. glad that I've failed in certain, in certain arenas, yeah. That's very philosophical. What, um, what's your most treasured physical possession? Why did you laugh at that? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why something popped into my head, but I won't say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one we want to keep safe. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I got a lot. Of, I like watches. Quite like oh, really? watches. Yeah. Are you wearing a watch today? I am. Yeah. Can you tell us what it is? I can. It's a Bremont. Really? English. English. Watchmaker. English watchmaker. Yeah. Beautiful watches. Yeah, they are. They're really nice. Yeah. Good. Well, shout out to Bremont then. Yeah. Big um, shout out. Which book has influenced you the most, or is there a book you recommend to people when they say? I need some advice on something. The SAS Who Dares Wins book's not bad. Okay. Four blokes wrote it. I'm one of them. <laughs> what else is there? I mean, I don't know about philosophical books that help you through situations. That's not a bad one, if, if I'm honest. Probably the stuff, read the stuff that I didn't write. Um, there's a few. There's some. I'm, I, I like books. I like non-fiction. Mm. And I read a lot of books. Yeah. So I'm reading one at the moment called Chasing the Scream. It's about the war on drugs, obviously. Right. That's very interesting. Yeah. Chasing the Scream. Chasing the Scream, yeah. Good name. It was a very good name, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have a personal motto? Pretty much try and do stuff that makes you happy. And what makes you happy? What's your idea of happiness? Just doing crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> With the opportunity to have downtime as well. Good, awesome. Jason, thank you very much. Thank you very much, cheers. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram if you're so inclined, at the Gents Journal. 
Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.